Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, everyone. Uh, this is Alexi McCammond. I'm a deputy news editor from Axios, filling in for Bill Press today. We miss him dearly, but I'm so excited to be here with my good friend Jamie and to bring you what will surely be a great show. Uh, we have a staff writer for The Atlantic coming in at the top of the hour, uh, Van Newkirk. We have a congressional reporter for USA Today, Eliza Collins, coming in after that, and a sports reporter for SB Nation, Tyler Tynes, coming in later to talk about NFL protests. We have so much to talk about. This week has been insane, like every week in September and what feels like every single week since Donald Trump took office. Uh, we're going to be talking about health care because that imploded and it was a sobering failure for the GOP. We're talking about tax reform, NFL protests, Trump on Puerto Rico, Trump on everything. <laughs> so it's going to be a really great show, and I hope you stick around. Uh, first, I'd like to talk a little bit about health care because, uh, you know, yesterday there was this sort of surprise to some that they are not even voting on it, which was supposed to happen today, remind you. So today, Jamie, I think this is interesting to note, was supposed to be kind of insane. Trump is rolling out tax reform later tonight, right. and they were supposed to vote on Graham Cassidy today, right. which would have been a disaster and I think they knew that it would have been an embarrassment an embarrassment right and so after they saw that they didn't have enough votes yesterday uh, Cassidy and Graham both basically decided we're not going to move forward on a vote which for a lot of Republicans I think was a good thing uh, but for the party looks like an embarrassment even though they didn't move forward with it um, so I'd love to play a clip from right after it was decided that they didn't have enough votes Cassidy came out and basically talked about the path forward now that it has failed. We'll keep working at it. Our Democratic friends said if we just give them a chance, they'll now be bipartisan. They'll now have that chance to be bipartisan. So he, you know, is saying that Democrats want to move forward in a bipartisan way, but they're not going to give them that chance, which is interesting because, uh, you know, Lamar Alexander said that he wants to come back to the table. After he walked away from it, he wants to make a bipartisan effort to work on this. And so then Graham comes out and has a totally different statement than Cassidy. We're going to get there. To my Republican colleagues, we're going to fulfill our promise to repeal and replace. To the American people, we're going to improve health care for you because at the end of the day, that's the only promise that matters. Get in, we're going to get into the differences between those statements quickly, but first I'm going to pass it over to Jamie. <laughs> 
This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Wednesday morning. Just want to get in a couple of other stories, including Congressman Al Green. You may have missed this with a big news day yesterday, Tuesday. Congressman Al Green from the state of Texas. A Democrat threatened to force a House floor vote next week on impeaching Donald Trump. Should make things very interesting for uh, other members of his party. He says he's going to file an impeachment resolution next week while condemning Trump's attacks on NFL players. This was reported by The Hill. The resolution is considered privileged under House rules, which means it would automatically force action on the House floor within two days. So midweek next week, we have to see what Democrats may be doing in responding to Al Green's resolution uh, to impeach. I don't think we're going to see any serious action yet. But either way, this is a good first step if Democrats do want to be serious about this down the line. Yeah, so, I agree. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, some more news from Twitter. Twitter, big shakeup yesterday with an announcement from the social media company saying that they will be extending the 140 character limit to 280. That's going to be a huge change, including the fact uh, that, you know, like, a lot of editors in, in, in the journalism world that you right. and I both know are particularly frustrated by this, right. saying that, you know, 140 seemed to be the perfect amount uh, to get your opinion out. However, uh, it's just starting right now with a small group. Jack Dorsey, of course, one of the creators of Twitter, posted a tweet. His account can do it. I saw a couple of other accounts yesterday. The company cites uh, differences between languages as a reason why they're going to extend it. So we'll they see. Are, yeah. yeah, More coming up on the show, by the way. Stay tuned. On TV and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Hey everyone, this is Alexi McCammond. I'm a deputy news editor with Axios, filling in for Bill Press today. Super excited to be here. Uh, before we get back to healthcare, I just want to talk about that Twitter thing again, because I am so, so frustrated by it. So for those listening, this is a shameless plug for Axios, which is, again, where I work. Uh, our whole thing is this uh, term that we call smart brevity. So it's super short. Just the facts you need to know. Twitter expanding the character limit is, one, totally coming from my job because <laughs> a 280-character limit tweet is essentially the length of a post it feels at times on Axios.com, which is great, but I, I'm now scared for my job. Well, someone tweeted yesterday. They said, again, if you missed it, we read the story about how Twitter is expanding the character limit from 140 to 280. Uh, right now, just a small test group. Someone made the joke yesterday on Twitter that Twitter will be extending the character limit to 1,000 and then we'll start uh, printing the best tweets and delivering them to you on paper every morning. <laughs> I'd buy. I'd click. That, you know what? I, I'm an old-fashioned guy. I still love reading a print newspaper. Yeah. I love holding a print newspaper. Yeah. So I'm all for it. Would you buy a book of a collection of 1,000 character tweets? No, because they're still tweets, and generally people are bad at Twitter. <laughs> yeah. And you know, since you know Joe Schmo can tweet, right. we're going to have. If this character limit keeps extending, it's just going to be a garbage fire day after day. Right, and you know, for people listening at home, especially if you don't use Twitter, this can seem like a stupid argument. Like, why does it really matter? But I think there was an interesting criticism I saw yesterday that's like, people who use Twitter frequently and are online have asked 
the company to rework their uh, like community standards over mm-hmm. and over again because of the harassment online that fosters on Twitter, especially against women and journalists, especially from Trump supporters and trolls. And it can get really nasty. And there are so many instances I've seen where women and anyone really report these instances of harassment to Twitter and they basically respond with the same email that says, no, sorry, this doesn't violate our community standards. So for a long time, people have been looking to see, well, what is Twitter going to do to address this? And they roll out a new update, which is 240 characters. Just gets worse. Just gets worse. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of just, you know, a little tech news to start your day when we're not talking about healthcare. But we should get back to healthcare because that is something that everyone probably cares about instead of Twitter. Um, So we played those clips earlier from Cassie and Graham right after they realized that they didn't have enough votes to move forward. And Cassidy basically said, look, Democrats say they want to move forward in a bipartisan way. We're not going to give that to them. And then Graham comes out and says nothing about the failure, doesn't mention it failing, doesn't mention that they don't have the votes, is really like responding in a way that reflects his pride being hurt. And he basically says, we're not going to let the party down moving forward and we will get it done at some point, which, to be honest, if I were a member of Graham's party or a fellow Republican lawmaker, I would not be reassured by that at all. They have failed three times now uh, and it's just not looking good, especially when they are coming out and saying they're not going to work with Democrats, which would be the only way, presumably, to get this done. But we will be talking more about that later with Eliza because there's a really interesting budget situation happening soon mm, where they're yeah. going to try to pass it with only Republican support. Which... I, just, I just think it's really interesting to watch Mitch McConnell amidst all this. He didn't he wasn't really involved, especially right. with this latest round of health care efforts from the Republicans. Lindsey Graham effectively acted as a party leader. I guess you could say Bill Cassidy nearly right. equally. But Lindsey Graham was the one who was forcefully out there saying, listen, you have you have two choices. It's either federalism or socialism. Socialism, of course, referring to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. Right. Uh, Mitch McConnell just wasn't involved whatsoever. Republicans coming out yesterday trying to shield him, saying, don't blame Mitch for this. It's right. not his fault. But, hey, Roy Moore won uh, the, uh, the, <laughs> the runoff in Alabama last night, which, uh, you know, Roy Moore is not a fan of Mitch McConnell. If the tide starts to shift and Donald Trump is hearing from more people like Steve Bannon and Roy Moore. I don't know. Mitch McConnell next year. Right. Is he still is he still majority leader? Right. I think that's a really good point because we've seen how Trump has been rejecting McConnell in so many ways and pushing him out of the public view. And the way you made the point perfectly, the way that Graham and Cassidy handled this health care bill is doing the same thing that Trump is doing, which is isolating McConnell, who is the party leader, which is just sort of I mean, it's just not normal, right? Especially when you're trying to pass major legislation. McConnell is the one who could presumably get that done better than anyone. uh, And they are totally pushing him out of the way. And now with Roy Moore's victory in Alabama last night, it's a further reflection that Trump has sort of created this populist wave that even he can't control, right? It's certainly anti-McConnell. Roy Moore is effectively a Breitbart favored candidate. Right. Steve Bannon endorsed him heavily, even though Donald Trump was endorsing Luther Strange. So if he ends up winning in December and taking the Senate seat from Jeff Sessions, by the way, <laughs> left vacant by Jeff oh, Sessions, yeah. which is like that. I could talk about that, I think, all day. Um, 
if he ends up taking this, it's like Republicans sure are gaining another Republican senator, but a very, very, very conservative Republican senator who is very anti-establishment, who represents the sort of Bannonites of the Republican conservative wing who wouldn't necessarily vote on things that McConnell would put forward and who could end up being a thorn in the sort of Republican establishment side, which I don't know how big of a win Republicans could consider that if he's going to be anti-agenda, anti-establishment. Um, but it is really interesting that he could be taking Jeff Sessions' seat because there's one big thing that Roy Moore and Jeff Sessions have in common, which is that they were both denied federal judgeship because of having controversial views that were considered racist. Sure, good point, yeah. So uh, that's fun for Donald Trump, for Steve Bannon, for McConnell, for Republicans. There's something in the water down there in Alabama. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever been to Alabama, but uh, I think if I went, maybe I... You know, neither have I, and I'm sure there's a handful of you that listen down in Alabama, so I'm not going to say anything uh, too bad about your state. In fact, I'll stand up for your state. My girlfriend went down there a couple of weeks ago and spent some time in Birmingham saying, Birmingham is actually pretty progressive, or parts of it are progressive. I worry more so about the outlying areas, some of the rural areas in Alabama. And you saw last night, I, I think I didn't, I looked at the map briefly, the, um, the electoral map uh, this morning on the New York Times website, and it looked as though that Luther Strange picked up Birmingham, uh, maybe even Huntsville, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but literally all of the other outlying areas were red, and that belonged to Roy Moore. Mm. You know, could we play that clip about Roy Moore uh, mentioning Trump? Because I thought that was really interesting, given Trump's involvement. Don't let anybody in the press think that because he supported my opponent that I do not support him. So Trump was clear in his support for Luther Strange. He nicknamed him Big Luther, which is a classic Trump nickname, but was a positive one, which he usually gives out negative ones. He has been tweeting about him since he held that rally in Alabama last Friday, uh, which, of course, is where all the NFL controversy started. Um, and he's been a clear supporter of Luther Strange. So it's interesting now to hear Roy Moore, who is supported by Bannon, uh, to say, even though Trump doesn't support me, I support him. So, th I mean... It's interesting in the sense that Trump was endorsing his direct opponent, but it's not interesting when we step back and consider what we just mentioned, which is that Roy Moore is super anti-establishment and Donald Trump has built himself to be anti-establishment. So if he gets into the Senate, you know, he could align himself with Trump in this anti-establishment group. But uh, it is interesting thinking about all of this, especially, Jamie, we talked about this morning, which I saw... At 5 a.m., 4.30 a.m., Trump deleted all of the tweets, yeah. all three of the tweets he had sent out endorsing Luther Strange explicitly. It's just a sampling these of these three tweets sent over, uh, I think this was actually just within the past 24 hours. This was leading up to the election. Uh, Alabama, get out and vote for Luther Strange. He has proven to me that he will never let you down. Hashtag MAGA. That was deleted. Luther Strange has been shooting up in the Alabama polls since my endorsement. Finish the job. Vote today for Big Luther. Deleted. Big election tomorrow in the great state of Alabama. Vote for Senator Luther Strange. Tough on crime and border. We'll never let you down. <laughs> I understand him deleting that last one. That makes a lot of sense because Luther Strange did, in fact, let him down. Donald <laughs> Trump tweeting after the election results came in at 10.17 p.m. last night. Congratulations to Roy Moore on his Republican primary win in Alabama. Luther Strange started way back and ran a good race. Roy, win, in all caps, in December. Yeah, Here's the thing. History. I think that Donald Trump didn't know who Roy Moore was. 
Mm. And obviously there is the fact that Jeff Sessions is a member of Donald Trump's cabinet and is a uh, Jeff Sessions is a good friend of Luther Strange's. Therefore, Donald Trump just sort of had to do it. He had to put his backing behind Luther Strange. But I don't think Donald Trump knew enough about Roy Moore. Uh, Maybe Steve Bannon didn't get enough Breitbart articles on his desk when he was still in the White House. Uh, (laughs) It's clear to to anyone that knows Donald Trump and anyone that knows just an inkling about Roy Moore that Roy Moore is Donald Trump's candidate and has been from the beginning. And now things are going to get interesting with, you know, Roy Moore versus a Democrat, Doug Jones. Doug Jones has a pretty good career, but he's still a Democrat in Alabama. However, Sites like Move On have already started their their email pushes. I got an email this morning saying this is important. This yeah. is, you know, Democrats believe that with a controversial candidate like Roy Moore, they have a much better chance of winning than they do against somebody like Luther Strange from the establishment. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. Roy Moore is a candidate that you would expect Donald Trump to support. Uh, he has said that the Constitution was created to foster Christianity he has claimed that uh, Sharia law exists like in rampant ways in Illinois. He told our very own Bill Press back in 2005 on C-SPAN, as unearthed by CNN this past week, that homosexual conduct is detestable and should mm. be considered illegal. Mm. So, uh, stand up guy? <laughs> stand up guy, yeah. Stand up guy. He pulled out a gun during his uh, speech yesterday while on stage. Guns and God have been central to his sort of like anti-establishment campaign. These are all things that you'd think would resonate with Trump. And it's interesting to think about if Steve Bannon were still in the White House, would this have been any different? Right. I don't remember when Luther Strange started or sorry, when Donald Trump started endorsing Luther Strange. But I think it was after Steve Bannon left the White House. Um, But in any case, it would be interesting to see what sort of influence Bannon would have tried to have on Trump and this endorsement. Had he been in the White House still? By the way, if you have any thoughts on this, uh, the Alabama Senate, Senate race or uh, health care, or we're also going to be talking about Puerto Rico and Trump's day yesterday, tweet at us at BP show. And Lexi, you were on Twitter as uh, Lexi McCammond at Very Lexi long. McCammond. I'm at J Benson, D.C. But of course, the show is at BP, BP show. Go ahead and send us a tweet or uh, join us in the YouTube chat room, youtube.com backslash the Bill Press show. Awesome. Uh, I'm so glad you brought up. Trump and Puerto Rico, because there's so much to talk about with Trump all the time, but especially from yesterday. Um, And so, you know, this morning, our Axios AM newsletter by Mike Allen, which is amazing. You should all subscribe. It's free. It comes out daily. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Uh, The top item says uh, Trump against the world. And it's basically what Mike has learned from conversations with various people connected to the White House and Republicans that in private, Trump is now physically mocking McConnell and McCain, which, I mean, we've seen the ways in which Trump has selected his distractions, his juvenile distractions, whether it's the NFL while Puerto Rico is happening or now physically mocking McConnell and McCain after healthcare failed and he's rolling out tax reform tonight. But basically he's he's isolating himself by attacking all these people. And we've seen, I mean, Mike has listed out in a, in a recent newsletter, I think, on Sunday after this NFL thing, a list of all the people and things Trump has attacked. I think the New York Times has a running list of the update that has more than 500 things. Um, and this is just another example of Trump not getting his way, not getting what he wants politically, and instead resorting to these sort of bully tactics where he is attacking 
folks on what they look like. And again, we were saying earlier that Trump and McConnell don't necessarily get along, right? They're from two totally different walks of life. Trump doesn't seem to respect him. He certainly doesn't respect him when he cannot follow through on things like health care. Um, but, you know, it's something like he was saying McConnell is lethargic and like talking about his body. He made fun of McCain for his thumbs down motion during the last health care vote, which not only. So the the interesting thing about McCain and the Graham Cassidy situation is that it shows the way in which Republicans handled this. And we can talk more about this with Van, but the way in which Republicans handled this suggested that they didn't take McCain's iconic moment seriously or to heart, right? Like that was a big deal for him to vote against it in the way in which he did and the things he said. And now that's reinforced by Trump in private, apparently doing a thumbs down sign to people when talking about McCain to make no. fun of him. Yes. He makes fun of McCain and refers to him by doing a thumbs down. You know, I'm surprised that he doesn't uh, try to lift his arms above his head and not get far enough. That would be like a classic Donald Trump. If you remember on the campaign trail where he made fun of the reporter with um, mm. the cerebral palsy, right, with the hand, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to do it because I I never want to mock somebody like that. Right. But that that would be a, a classic Trumpism is to make fun of a disability, right. uh, an ailment, anything else. But the thumbs down thing makes perfect sense. Right. And and. I think the way that we're seeing Trump handle these things in such an immature way just suggests that he loves these distractions from the real issues. And I'd love to play the clip from him at the press conference with Spain's PM Rajoy yesterday about the NFL. For people to disrespect that by kneeling during the playing of our national anthem, I think is disgraceful. So he's in the middle of this press conference with Spain's prime minister. There are so many international things to address. And of course, he gets asked about the NFL because that's the situation he has put himself in. And, you know, similar to the way that he is mocking McConnell and McCain, the entire situation with the NFL shows that he has been distracted and preoccupied and relying on juvenile distractions instead of dealing with the real issues. And for him to bring it up yesterday when answered, he had an opportunity to correct the record or revise what he originally said or say, you know what, I was really heated over the weekend, hence those tweets and my comments at Alabama. But like, you know, now I've thought about it and this is what we're going to do moving forward. Think about international issues. That clearly didn't happen. Um, And when we were writing about it, you know, we I think our headline was something about Trump and his quote was, I was not preoccupied with the NFL while Puerto Rico was being ravaged by Hurricane Maria, which he was. The NFL situation is a very important situation. I've heard that before about was I preoccupied? Not at all. He sent Jamie 15 tweets about the NFL and I think five about Puerto Rico. And of those five, three of them Three of them were just not normal. They were not normal for a sitting president to address a region filled with millions of Americans that are being devastated by a natural disaster in a way that calls them out for the debt that they owe, for their terrible infrastructure, as he calls it. He basically is suggesting that, you know, these things are happening, but let's not forget that Puerto Rico owes us a lot of money and they're going to pay up. And also their infrastructure was already garbage. So, you know. I mean, I saw this this several times on Twitter over the past couple of days 
with in reaction to Trump's lackluster response to the situation in Puerto Rico, which apocalyptic conditions. Again, Van Newkirk from The Atlantic is joining us shortly. He'll he'll go into it in depth. But right. I really do not think that Donald Trump knows that Puerto Rico is part of the United States. It's a United <laughs> States territory. I don't think. Yeah. I mean. You know, he, was, he, he might know the Virgin Islands is because it's U.S. Virgin Islands right. in, in the name. But Puerto Rico sounds so un-American to him. Right. That right. He'd never thought about it. Right. That the fact that this is something that we need to respond to as Americans because they, in effect, are Americans as well. Right. They are. And the way that he set it up, you know, addressing Texas and Puerto Rico and not really considering these folks Americans. I mean, it just also why why was he ignoring Puerto Rico for so long? You know, I think that's what's frustrating. And it speaks to your point, Jamie, that perhaps he like is not realizing or considering that these are Americans. These are literally American lives that are in danger, like anywhere else, like in Texas, like anywhere. And he is so has been so slow to respond to it. The way he has characterized it as they owe us money, their infrastructure is bad. It's setting up this thing that Trump does often, whether with the NFL or now with Puerto Rico, which is establishing an other. And Puerto Rico in this situation is the other. And they are characterized in a light that reflects that. That's a that's a very good point. Let's go ahead and play this ocean clip from yesterday, mm-hmm. because I think this really was the the height of ridiculousness uh, yeah. in, in the way that he feels about responding to this. In Texas, we can ship the trucks right out there. And, you know, we can do we've we've gotten A pluses on Texas and on Florida. And uh, we will also on Puerto Rico. But the difference is this is an island sitting in the middle of an ocean. And it's a big ocean. It's a very big ocean. And uh, uh, we're we're doing a really good job. It's a big ocean. This goes back to even with Harvey and and Irma when he was tweeting, catastrophic, historic flood. You know, never seen anything like it. Yeah. Like it's like a biblical event. I mean, it is a biblical event in that, you know, these floods should not be happening. Right. So often, but this is just, it's just disgusting. It's a very big ocean, and uh, uh, it, we're, we're doing a really good job. You're not doing a really good job, by the way. Uh, and, and he, you know, exactly. He says we're doing a really good job. He says we've we've received good marks on Puerto Rico. Like, I don't understand if that's some grading scale that he's referring to. Um, and I don't understand how you could get good marks, so to speak, on something that you haven't really taken concrete action on right if not for people like marco rubio who has been clearly trying to help puerto rico trump admitted himself he said quote it's not easy to get supplies there because it's an island it's not easy to get supplies there so he is admitting that they have been slow to get the resources there that they need uh he you know mentioned this big ocean which is like apparently deterring them from helping but i mean i think what's so problematic about this is that whether or not the resources are there the logistics the resources are there is one thing it's the way that he talks about it it's the way that he tweets about it it's the way that he mentions it during this press conference it's the way that he says well i'm going to puerto rico on tuesday and that's the earliest i can be there so like leave me alone basically. And sure, it is great that he's going there on Tuesday. I just really, I mean, I know that it's difficult or I imagine it's difficult to be the president and to deal with these natural disasters one after another after another. But 
again, he has established Puerto Rico as the other, and that is clear in his rhetoric about them. And when Van comes in, you know, I'm really excited. I don't know if that's the right word, but excited for him to get into the specifics, like you were mentioning, Jamie, about the devastation in Puerto Rico. I mean, I have friends there who, you know, were sending me Snapchats, waiting in line for multiple hours to get gas to refill their generators so they could have power. And, you know, they were waiting for three, four, five hours to maybe get three gasoline cans filled for generators and like who knows how long that will last right van i know has talked to folks who have family in puerto rico who have not heard from them because they can't even find cell service or wi-fi somewhere and when you are in these dire straits and you have family members who are there and the president is tweeting things like well they have a lot of debt to pay and their infrastructure is terrible and like we'll do what we can when we can but like can't make it there until tuesday and is still tweeting about the NFL and still tweeting about things that do not matter. I can't imagine how frustrating that is. I'm frustrated. Well, you know, this isn't a good thing, but there are two instances in the past week where Donald Trump has had just awful responses to situations, and that would be the NFL protests and what's going on in Puerto Rico. Now, in a way, he's shed light on these issues, so that we as Americans are paying more attention to it. Now, the NFL situation, uh, Tyler Tynes from SB Nation joining us later on the show. We'll get more into that with him. It's a little bit of a double-edged sword because a lot of people are missing the message that these players are trying to convey about racial injustice with the kneeling, uh, especially with the locking arms sort of nullifying that. But at the same time, we're talking about it. Right. You know, We're understanding that it's something that we as Americans need to have open debates about. And that with Puerto Rico is that if Donald Trump hadn't made these ridiculous comments, I don't know if we'd spend as much time talking about what's going on in Puerto Rico because of everything else that's going on in this crazy town of Washington, D.C. Right, right. I think that's a good point. I think that's a really good point, right? It is a double-edged sword. Uh, and it is interesting. You know, he said, we are totally focused on Puerto Rico, but at the same time, it doesn't take me long, a long time to put out a wrong. And... You know, thankfully, he's mentioned Puerto Rico, like you said, because it's starting this dialogue. But I am hopeful that after he visits on Tuesday and on Tuesday, we will see a shift in his messaging when he sees firsthand the devastation that has ravaged through the island of Puerto Rico, because it's now seemingly an abstract thing to him. And when he gets there, I feel like there's no there's no going back like you can't say these same things after you see the devastation. You know, but, before we break, I, I want to say there's one thing I wish that he would stop talking about, and that's North Korea. Uh, because every time he talks about North Korea, <laughs> I just think more and more about what Kim, Kim Jong-un might be able to do. Can we play this clip from yesterday yeah. about uh, the devastating response? If we take that option, it will be devastating. I can tell you that devastating for North Korea. That's called the military option. If we have to take it, we will. I just don't I don't I don't like talking about just the American carnage, right? It goes back right. to the inauguration speech and oh, yeah. he he gets he gets off sometimes on talking about doom and gloom and when it comes to something so serious as nuclear weapons and launching missiles it, it, as an American and someone that lives, you know, right down the street from the Capitol of the White House it's pretty terrifying. And, and right. you know, let's let's spend more time talking about Puerto Rico, even if he can't 
figure out the right narrative to take or right. let's spend spend more time talking about the NFL protests and less time talking about uh, the possible end of the world. Right. Especially when North Korea is becoming increasingly upset at that. Um, so we will be back very soon with Van Newkirk from The Atlantic talking about all of this and more. Stay tuned. Sitting in the middle of an ocean and it's a big ocean. It's a very big ocean. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, everyone. This is Alexi McCammon. I'm a deputy news editor with Axios, filling in for Bill Press. Uh, Jamie, I know people have been tweeting, so I'd love to hear some of those tweets. We are active in the Twitter sphere on Twitter at BP Show, the official Bill Press Show account. Alexi, of course, is at Lexi McCammon. I'm at Jay Benson, D.C. Keep these coming, but I'm going to read a couple of tweets from you folks this morning. On the subject of the Alabama Senate race, of course, Roy Moore winning that uh, Republican primary runoff uh, for the special election election being held in December. Here is Phil saying, under the radar, Dems have flipped seven state legislative seats this year, six in districts Trump won big. So that's good news. Fred Wilder says, think Senator Moore will brandish his gun on the floor of the Senate or will he just shoot Dems on sight? That's a little dark, but uh, Roy, Moore, Roy Moore did bring out his revolver uh, during a campaign <laughs> stop the other day. Uh, and on the subject of Puerto Rico, um, you know, this is pretty honest. Ray tweeted uh, something I said earlier. Uh, Donald Trump should stop talking about North Korea and focus on Puerto Rico. Atheist Jesus weighs in. He says, you mean where those brown-skinned U.S. citizens live, which I think is is tough, but... Mm. Accurate. That's right. probably how Donald Trump sees this. Right. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for reading those. Uh, they were all super interesting. And I think that I think Democrats have flipped eight seats, uh, if I'm correct, eight seats that were previously held by Republicans now. And Republicans have flipped zero that were held by Democrats. Wow. So that's interesting. But we are here with Van Newkirk, staff writer for The Atlantic. Van, how are you? I'm doing OK. Uh, the coffee here is not great, but, you know. <laughs> Oh, no. I'm living with Bill, really honest. Where are you, Bill? <laughs> yeah, we need to change it. Uh, I will agree. It's not the best, but when it's really early, I feel like it's better than nothing. Gets the job done. I would also like to shout out the local 7-Eleven uh, man who gave me my coffee for free this morning. Oh, wow. I think he felt badly for me because it was 6 a.m. and I was walking around like a lost puppy when nothing else is open except for 7-Eleven. So it was a good morning. Um, we were talking about Puerto Rico before you showed up. You've written a ton about Puerto Rico. Obviously, the people who are tweeting in are interested about it. The way that Donald Trump has been talking about it, I was saying to Jamie earlier, suggests that he's setting them up as the other for whatever reason. Um, And I was saying that hopefully when he visits on Tuesday and he sees firsthand the devastation on the island, he will change his rhetoric. Who knows? Right. I'm hopeful. Um, But I think you have really interesting insights you've written recently about the actual effects so far in Puerto Rico and what that looks like. Could you give everyone listening either the devastation by the numbers so far that we know or what this looks like in terms of families searching for cell signals, all that stuff. Okay. So the one thing is that uh, for the by the numbers portion, we don't quite know exactly what's happening because the devastation to the infrastructure was just so incredible. So power is still out from most of the island and will be from most of the island for months. 
uh, maybe half a year in some places. Only something on the order of 230 of their 1,600 plus cell towers in the area are working. So how people are getting messages out back to the mainland, to family, they're getting messages to first responders, how they're putting out press releases. They are going to cell towers and waiting in lines, holding their phones up in cell towers. And most of the cell towers that are still in good shape are in and around San Juan and the uh, bigger municipalities. So people from the interior, from from the countryside, have to travel across you know, roads that may not may no longer exist to get to these cell towers. Now, the good thing for people in the cities is a, good, a, a lot of the landlines are back. Uh, so people are able at least to, to get out sort of official communications. Um, right. And the airports are a mess. Getting supplies in and out of Puerto Rico right now is, is very difficult. Getting people in and out of Puerto Rico right now is very difficult. Uh, the one thing we need to, I guess, keep an eye on over the next couple of days, especially as the uh, as FEMA, as the Red Cross, uh, really get to work penetrating the inner areas, is water. Mm. It, you know, people are, water is the big limiting factor in all disasters. And lots right. of people right now should be at the end of their water supply. So that's really the thing, water. Right, um, yeah. right. And you mentioned that it's difficult to get supplies there. Jamie, I hesitate to ask, but I'm going to ask. Can you play that clip one more time of Trump talking about the difficulties of getting supplies to Puerto Rico? Texas, we can ship the trucks right out there. And, you know, we can do we've we've gotten A pluses on Texas and on Florida. And uh, we will also on Puerto Rico. But the difference is this is an island sitting in the middle of an ocean. And it's a big ocean. It's a very big ocean. And uh, it, we're, we're doing a really good job. Thoughts, immediate reaction. He, he laughs here. I just want to point that out. Middle of an ocean. That's a laugh. A big ocean. Very big ocean. The good thing for Puerto Ricans is that President Trump is actually directly responsible for just about none of the relief efforts. He has, he doesn't, he controls, he gets to sign, I guess, the declaration of an emergency that came and he signed that. Right. But he doesn't direct FEMA. He doesn't right. tell the Navy to move where they need to move. He, you know, Puerto Rico has a Navy base, so I'm pretty sure they're just fine on the whole big ocean thing. Um, <laughs> we have planes. Right. We have boats. Uh, so, you know, the the good thing for Puerto Rico in the short term is that his sort of bumbling here, his tweets, his ridiculous tweets, actually don't have much of a bearing on the immediate response. Right, uh, right. Yeah, the, the aid is going to, FEMA's going to go where FEMA's going to go. Uh, that's going to have its pluses and minuses. They're not going to have anything to do with President Trump. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, sure, it is difficult to get supplies there. But like you said, luckily, he's not really directing this. And we've seen folks like Marco Rubio who are making direct efforts to help get resources there. Um, and it just is like kind of confusing the way that he talks about it. And you, you mentioned the way that he tweets about it. When I first read, I think it was the first three tweets he sent, a tweet thread about Puerto Rico, I was like, you know, immediately like, wow, he's finally tweeting about it after tweeting about the NFL 15 times. Um, and then reading it, I was just confused, right? Uh, he mentioned the debt that they're in, the money that they owe Wall Street and the banks, their infrastructure, which he called terrible, I think. Um, and so he was setting it up in this way that's sort of like, well, Puerto Rico already has its issues. So, like, we care, but let's not forget that they owe us money and that their infrastructure was already bad, even though it's now in worse condition. How did you read those tweets? Well, be careful what you wish for, right? Uh, <laughs> but 
So this is the flip side of the coin of Trump not really being in control of the immediate response. Right. But we're going to have to... Aid is not going to be a you know one or two month thing on this. It's going to be a six month, a year, two year, three year thing. Right. And he's setting the stage for basically sort of denying that aid on the on the grounds of okay, Puerto Rico, their infrastructure is already bad. They've made bad decisions. So, and a lot of the work in recovering from this storm, especially, is going to involve things that don't necessarily look like hurricane relief work. You're going to have to rebuild that infrastructure. You're going to have to get loans out to people. Right. You're going to have to spend some money. You're probably going to have to increase the Medicaid match rate. And so the the rhetoric he's putting out there that, that Puerto Rico is a debtor, right, that they are a dependency, that's that's a sort of a classical uh, way people have described colonies in, right. in Puerto Rico uh, and how they've used colonialist, colonialist language about Puerto Rico. And how that plays out usually is after the hurricane is forgotten about, after people stop parachuting in and do journalism on it, uh, after the the media attention, you think about Houston, lots of it, water without power, still struggling. We don't hear about it because the right. media has gone away from it. Right. How soon will media go away from Puerto Rico? How soon will this move from a immediate crisis to an ongoing, enduring crisis that phase is where things get dangerous, where this rhetoric right. becomes poison, yeah, right. and where you can just say, hey, we're not going to give Puerto Rico these, uh, this loan forgiveness, uh, these, these favorable rates, because they, you know, they don't do well. And so that's when it becomes uh, the, the real problem. Right. And I think you're, I mean, to speak to your reporting, the way that you've been reporting on it, I think, will help keep the conversation going, because you've been talking to people who have family members there. You've been talking about the way in which these, uh, you know, sort of like online networks fostered by crowdsourcing, crowdfunding are creating or mirroring these familial connections in real life. Um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the people you've spoken with? I know you spoke with a grad student from UChicago, which is my alma mater, so I was very happy to see that, but obviously under bad circumstances. She had a harrowing story about her family there and the situation that's going on. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so she uh, was one of Alexander. She was one of the mm-hmm. people who uh, is trying to reach family member, family members back home and has not been able to. Uh, right. She's gotten, I think, at the, the time we spoke, two texts uh, from family, and you know, all of her family is there. And so right. you get a couple cousins here, a couple cousins there. Uh, they don't know about the cousins who are further away from San Juan, and right. you know it's a chain thing. So they they give the the news they can. People on are on WhatsApp when they can be, um, but they and other people, like you said, they're crowdfunding. People are doing well before FEMA gets there. Right. Um, these really incredible and brave and you know just unheard of relief responses efforts. Uh, I think the island of uh, Vieques, which is mm-hmm. a small uh, municipality off the coast of Puerto Rico, about eight miles off the uh, big island. And people there with, you know, there's a network of people of, of Viecans, uh who are there, who are living in the mainland United States, who basically organized a, uh, like an, a, an authorized, a charter flight of supplies Right. They got a plane. Right. It's incredible. Regular people are getting planes to places to get them supplies. That's incredible. Right. right. Yeah. And this is all set up online, right? Via a GoFundMe or something? Mm-hmm. All GoFundMe and Facebook. Yeah. Right. Facebook, GoFundMe, uh, and Twitter. And people are using these tools to in, in ways that I think even their founders had no idea they would be used 
Right. And so you mentioned in your article, I have it down here, that those flights helped resupply the hospital where doctors and nurses are currently operating in tents, relying on a gasoline stockpile that can keep generators going for five days. And I was telling Jamie earlier that I have a friend from grad school whose family is in Puerto Rico. She's in Puerto Rico. And she was sending me Snapchats yesterday, waiting in line for hours to get gasoline, like, you know, just cars lined up and then sent me one hours later that was like finally success and it was three gasoline cans that she was getting for her family to refill these generators which that was a small moment for me to step back and be like yeah I'm in DC it can feel like it's far away like yes I'm part of the media so we're reporting on it but I I mean how many people would want to wait in line for hours to get gas for their car just on a normal day no one right and this is the reality and it's so incredible to see these crowdsourcing and crowdfunding efforts that are mobilizing online and then resulting in direct action for the folks of Puerto Rico when Donald Trump is slow to act, his reactions are less than helpful. Um, And again, it is difficult to get supplies, but this is showing the sheer will of people, I think. Yeah, the gasoline thing, uh, people don't really think about gasoline as as this big, but when the power goes, yeah, when the power goes, how do people get power? And that's usually gasoline. And, And those places so you know people around the cities do pretty well they stand in line and get and get gas but what about people where you have to fly the gas to them you have to pay to get gas in the planes to get the planes to get the gas over there and so like you said in lots of places are working with generators you think about power people like to think about their phones oh you know i don't know what i'd do without my phone being able to you know plug in and charge up but like these hospitals you got folks on dialysis right who or, you know, one missed dialysis visit away from the emergency room or worse. You got folks who need oxygen. You got, you know, people who are in sort of these managed care situations. We don't think about how power is necessary to maintain them. And these are people, you know, back in the mainland, they're people who walk around, you know, regular folks who have to go and plug in every now and then. And, and, and without that, people die. Right. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, we're here with Van Newkirk from The Atlantic. I'm Alexi McCammon from Axios, filling in for Bill Press. Uh, Van, you've done a ton of reporting on Puerto Rico, shifting the focus a little bit to Jeff Sessions. Uh, fun shift. Very fun shift. Yesterday, he gave a speech at Georgetown Law um, about campus free speech. And, you know, I have a few friends at Georgetown Law who were forwarding me emails from the dean of students and the dean basically saying, we encourage protest, uh, peaceful protest, but protest, if you're looking to protest, these are the designated areas, which I thought was a little interesting. And I mean, obviously, like giving designated areas is one thing, but I feel like it was a moment that the law school was sort of like, look, we get it. Like Jeff Sessions is coming to campus and we can't stop you. Um, I'd love to play a clip, Jamie, about Jeff Sessions referring to the NFL protests for Van. There are many ways these um, players with all the assets that they have can express their political views other than, in effect, uh, denigrating the uh, symbols of, of our nation. I mean, to me, it's just fascinating how this NFL situation started by Donald Trump on his own volition has seeped into virtually every news cycle of every day since his rally in Alabama on Friday. Um, Jeff Sessions obviously talking about free speech. Let's talk a little bit about him saying that there are other forms of protest. Where, like, where do you think this is coming from, and what do you think he's referring to? Well, it's that speech. I think is a capsule of of just how hypocritical this conversation has become. So right. you have a university that is in effect limiting 
protest to a speaker coming to talk about to basically rail against free free speech zones right. where people where universities limit protest and they're doing that to protect him from protest right he goes and he talks about free speech he talks about the necessity of absolute free speech he talks about dr king somehow trampling white supremacy with his words alone uh he talks about lincoln i, I don't want to make you know the 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 total inference here, but you know, it says Lincoln debated slavery, which you know we debated slavery away. Yeah, we did it. Um, and then he goes and he's talking about how he doesn't like people protesting, kneeling, right, during the anthem, uh, and against the flag. But nobody goes out. Nobody is saying I hate the flag. That's why I'm kneeling. <laughs> right. Like, and so, right. this is it's the most ridiculous thing. You have people making it known that the problem is not free speech. Right. The problem is not limitation of free speech. It is certain expressions they don't like. Right. It is, this is the exact opposite of free speech. A government official coming out and saying which forms of speech are acceptable is actually one of, would be the textbook definition of not free speech, right? Right, right. And so, yeah, we're in really interesting spaces right now. Right, and I love that you make the point that he's contradicting himself because it is not free speech to say protesting in this way is wrong, you should do it in other ways. And he mentioned uh, something about how the government doesn't tell you what to do or what to say. I think we have that clip, too. Um. Great. In this great land, the government does not tell you what to think or what to say. Is that not exactly what he was doing when he said there are other forms of acceptable protests than kneeling during the national anthem? Is that not a faction of the government? Well, not just that, you know, when the White House came out against, say, Jamel Hill and said, you know, you should be fired. Right. These are the government telling you what to say. Now, it's not force of arms, um, and right. it's not, you know, prosecutable. Well, you, you can't bring it to court. You know, these are not constitutional violations of free speech. But if you really want free speech, your government should act as an exemplar of free speech, should right. go out and, you know, say, okay, they're free to say everything they want. And, you know, I think that's not happening now at all. Right. Yeah. Right. No, it's not. And and I, Jeff Sessions is so interesting to me because— he is the quintessential Trump cabinet member. He is someone who will go out there and push forward on Trump's often controversial agenda and views that got him elected and sort of just like does it over and over and over again without thinking about like what he's actually saying. Right. Like he contradicted himself so many times in this speech, but only because he is pushing forward on what he knows Trump thinks or feels or believes. And I think we're getting to a point where it's sort of like. I mean, very problematic, right? I, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, this is something that I've had a, a big bone to pick with for, for a while, this free speech debate, because so much of it is not about free speech. Right. Uh, it's something it, it, we have to remember. Jeff Sessions was not there speaking just to speak. He was speaking, uh, basically rolling out new DOJ policy about right. free speech on campuses, about, right. quote unquote, free speech on campuses. Right. And he's going to basically this seems to be the rollout of a of a of a push against universities that have moved to create safe spaces, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So this is not a free speech issue to me. It's a, a, a very common conservative versus liberal. It is people attacking institutions that are mostly considered liberal that have moved to change the way dialogue happens on their campuses. Right. And so, you know, this is the way that debate has always gone. It's not been, I don't think, a, a 
classic free speech debate. It's really people saying, we don't like what these liberal kids are doing. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's well, exactly what's happened. Yeah. And, and it is frustrating seeing the way that he's laying out these new DOJ guidelines sort of for free speech on campus because it's he's sort of having this almost antiquated view, right? Like college campuses are changing and millennials are changing and the views that people have and want to express and the ways in which they want to express is changing. And he's holding on to this idea of like law and order and control and like the way that you express your views are wrong because they are different from mine. And college campuses should be a place for open discourse and free discussion and thought and sharing of competing ideas. And he is stifling that in so many ways while also saying over and over again that, you know, the president has free speech rights too. So he can say whatever he wants via a tweet, via a rally, through anything. And it's fine and acceptable because he's the president and he has free speech rights. And that was just frustrating to me. Yeah. I mean, that, that vision of campuses is this, you know, buttoned up paragon of free speech. Right. That's never existed. Right. Right. I've been watching the Kim Burns Vietnam doc. And it's yes. the, so the eighth episode is very important because it shows what happened at Kent State, mm-hmm. what happened to liberal students who were protesting the war, who were shot and killed. Right. And then, you know, we know that happened. But then they talk about the polls the next day. And 57% of Americans supported shooting those kids. And so this has never been a, you know, and back then people were still saying, you know, conservatives can't have voice on campuses. People were still having the same sort of PC culture debate. So the idea, number one, that we've suddenly become PC is, you know, 50 year old, the record keeps scratching and going back to the beginning because people keep saying the same thing every decade. So yeah, it's really, this is a culture war. And it's, it's another front of the culture war and Let's not act like it's anything other than that. Right. Yeah. Right. And I feel like it's it's happening for the foreseeable future, especially with Jeff Sessions uh, at the head of the DOJ. Forever. What do you have working on next? What do you have going on? Um. So I'm writing about Kaepernick. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What What is there to talk about with Kaepernick? What do you mean? Is his? Are in you the talking news? to Kaepernick? <laughs> I wish. Um, that would be cool. Colin Kaepernick, if you're listening to this, uh, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> this is Van Newkirk at the Atlantic at Five Fifths on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> Um, That's very cool. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to put a sort of exclamation point on the reporting. The It's going to be an essay, I think, on okay. what we've written about this and uh, the status of football in America um, right. and why it's just been in the crosshair so much. So, Do you expect more protests at this week's games? No. Um, well, I do expect sort of an ongoing protest, but I don't expect there to be as much attention. Yeah. Um, did you hear about Aaron Rodgers' uh, call for unity, asking fans to lock arms in the stands? That's fun. Um, <laughs> it doesn't do anything. Well, that's the thing is, right. so the protest immediately becomes not a protest when the whole league joins on. Right. And so that's, you know, it's it's been co-opted completely. The effectiveness is gone. Um, it becomes a Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial. Oh, no. Yeah, basically. And actually, I've seen some really good photoshops of, uh, the Cowboys owner Jerry Jones when he's oh. kneeling and somebody photoshopped a Pepsi can over his whole body. <laughs> oh my gosh. But God bless the internet. Basically it's a Pepsi ad now. Um, right. The NFL is going to n- not change any of its things, any of the whole like alleged paid patriotism. Right. You know, it's just remarkable to have people kneeling for the anthem in a game where you have like six fighter jets flying over, where people right. are crying during the anthem. You know, you're, you have police officers locked arms in front of the players like 
Yeah, it's it's over. The, right. the effectiveness is, is is done. Right. The optics are just bizarre. Van, thank wait, you. Tell me about the spelling bee real quick. We have oh, one more yes, time. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> there was a spelling bee last night. What yes. happened? Yes. Um, so the, the National Press Club held a spelling bee, a politicians versus press. I love um, that. And press won. You were part of the press team. Yes. What was the word? Irascible? Irascible, right? yes. Um, are you I'm, actually dyslexic? Yes. I'm actually I'm actually dyslexic. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Um, so spelling is tough. But I made it. I was not the first person out. Um Made it pretty far. Not all heroes wear capes. Van Newkirk from The Atlantic, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hi, everyone. I'm Alexi McCammon, Deputy News Editor from Axios, filling in for the great Bill Press today. We have a great show continuing on. Uh, I'm joined by Eliza Collins from USA Today. Later, Tyler Tynes from SB Nation will be here. We're going to be talking about health care, the NFL protests, tax reform, the Trump administration, whatever we feel like. Uh, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Snuck up on me. Just a couple of other stories for you on this Wednesday morning. We begin with some big wins for Democrats last night. Of course, the leading story out of uh, Alabama is that Roy Moore defeated Luther Strange in the Republican primary runoff. Uh, Roy Moore will now face Doug Jones, the Democrats, in the special election for Jeff Sessions' Alabama Senate seat on December 12th. However, uh, big wins last night for Democrats, uh, beginning with one in New Hampshire. Uh, Democrat Kari Lerner defeated Republican James Head in the New Hampshire House District 4, a district Trump won by 23 points in the 2016 election. Always encouraging for Democrats when you see these wins where Trump uh, previously had a large footprint in Florida, Democrat Annette Tadeo won with a campaign focused on improving schools and protecting affordable health care. She also got a very helpful robocall from former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, this is huge for Democrats. That means uh, with these two wins last night, they have now flipped eight legislative seats in just uh, a couple of months. Republicans haven't flipped any. None. None. So uh, big momentum here for Democrats. It's going to be a steep race for Doug Jones in a um, in a seat that matters much more than some of these state level seats, but either way, uh, we've already seen organizations like Move On throw their support 
behind Doug Jones, thinking that with a candidate as controversial as Roy Moore, he might have a pretty good chance. What do you think? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. And I also think it's important to note that these state-level uh, seats that are being flipped for Democrats, certainly, you know, great thing for Democrats at the moment. Uh, some would argue it's not reflective of national trends. But I think that they're a great pipeline to these Senate seats and governorships that are important for the Democratic Party moving forward. So we'll Eliza? see. Eliza, you're the expert on this. <laughs> well, I always think about be careful what you wish for for Democrats, because remember, the Clinton campaign wanted to face off against Trump so badly, <laughs> thinking he was controversial and they'd be able to do it. I just think that right. with Alabama. But um, I do think there's a real chance, you know, versus Luther Strange, who was the establishment. And right. these seats are it's also helps with um, just kind of like mentality. Pet Democrats were yeah. pretty down for a lot of those um, special elections. And so having those seats that they're flipping feels good. Like right. we can get close. All right. Another story here. Uh, so Jeff Sessions making news yesterday talking about free speech on college campuses at Georgetown University. We just spoke in the last hour to Van Newkirk about it. He also was asked about uh Senator Elizabeth Warren, you remember back in February during Jeff Sessions confirmation to become attorney general, Elizabeth Warren read a letter on the floor of the Senate uh, from uh, was it Coretta Scott King, right? Uh, sharply criticizing him and his racist past. Jeff Sessions asked uh, what his thoughts on that was. He said yesterday at Georgetown University, quote, she certainly had the right to criticize my nomination. I think she really had the right to read the letter that she was blocked or at least temporarily blocked from reading, which, of course, she was blocked by Mitch McConnell. So there's one good thing out of Jeff Sessions' talk at Georgetown University. He admitted that Elizabeth Warren was right to do what she did. <laughs> right. Well, and Van made great points that throughout that speech, uh, Jeff Sessions was sort of contradicting himself, championing free speech, but then saying NFL protests when you're kneeling in front of the flag during the national anthem is unacceptable. Right. So sort of establishing this right and wrong way of expressing yourself via free speech, which I thought was interesting for Van to bring up. Um, but, you know, Jeff Sessions is Jeff Sessions, and I don't think we need to spend too much more time talking no. about him today. <laughs> One more quick story. Uh, we'll go to hockey. Uh, a forward for the San Jose Sharks, Joe Ward, one of 30 black players in the NHL, indicated yesterday to the San Jose Mercury News that he may kneel in protest during the national anthem. So it'll be interesting to see because I remember Donald Trump said that Pittsburgh Penguins still invited to the White House. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everyone. I'm Alexi McCammon, Deputy News Editor at Axios, filling in for Bill Press today. We have a great show. I'm joined by Eliza Collins from USA Today. We're going to be talking about health care, tax reform, Trump, lots of things. Later, Tyler Tynes from SB Nation will be here, and we're talking about NFL protests, among other things. It's been a great show, a busy day, a busy month. Eliza, thank you for being in. Happy to be here. Um, so we were just talking about Jeff Sessions. Don't really want to spend more time on that. Would <laughs> love to talk to you. You're a congressional reporter for USA yes. Today. So I would love to hear your expertise, especially on health care to start. Um, earlier, we were playing some clips from Cassidy and Graham that sort of talked about, uh, it revealed what they felt right after the vote. So if we could play Cassidy's clip, Jamie. We'll keep working at it. Our Democratic friends said, if we just give them a chance, they'll now be bipartisan. They'll now have that chance to be bipartisan. So that was Cassidy right after they, you know, figured out that they do not have enough votes to move forward on a vote. So they didn't. 
saying Democrats want to be, you know, bipartisan and work on this in a bipartisan way. We're not giving that to them, which I think is interesting considering Lamar Alexander has now come back to the table saying, let's do this in a bipartisan way. Are they going to move forward on this in a bipartisan way? I think that the GOP is very split on this. They will move forward in a bipartisan way, at least try to. Lamar Alexander restarted talks pretty immediately after they pulled the vote. There are definitely some Republicans. John Thune, who is in Republican leadership, said we're going to have to do something to stabilize the markets. But the bipartisan working group is not like a long term. They're definitely not looking at repeal. They're not even really looking at redoing the system, which some even some Democrats some moderate Democrats would like seem kind of like a, a lot of drastic changes. They're looking at stabilizing the market so that premiums don't go up in the short term. So I think that's something kind of the majority of the Republican caucus can get behind. Let's make sure that we fix it at least in the short term. But again, Orrin Hatch, also on Republican leadership, told us yesterday, I think that we just kind of let it fail mm-hmm. and let the American people see what Democrats did to them. But Interesting. Yeah. The question with that is Republicans are in the House, Senate, and White House, and they've had these very high-profile failures right. of Obamacare. Do Americans really blame Democrats? I don't think we, so. Right. I don't think so. Democrats got blamed But after implementing Obamacare, they lost their majorities, and now Republicans are in the hot seat. So Right. right. Well, and I've heard from various GOP aides and strategists who say at these town halls, constituents for House members, for Republican House members, will basically be like, we are not taking your excuses anymore. We don't care that you say that, well, we've been trying in the House, and it's all the Senate's fault. I'm hearing that people are kind of just fed up, and they're like, we don't want your excuses. Come back with results. And this is a huge blow to the GOP in terms of getting results. And could we argue that last night in Alabama, um, the win from kind of the populist candidate could be a reflection on anti-establishment? Although, of course, it's interesting because Roy Moore said he wouldn't vote for the bill himself because it wasn't conservative enough. But people are kind of forgetting that and they're blaming Luther Strange, who is in the Senate, who was a reliable yes vote. They couldn't get yes. It's a reflection on Mitch McConnell. Right. The Tea Party, those folks were more supporters. Right, right. I think that uh, election result was a clear rebuke against Trump, against McConnell. And Jamie and I were talking earlier that we've seen this shift where McConnell is increasingly being pushed out of these decisions of the room physically when these decisions are happening, right? Whether with Graham Cassidy, whether with Trump's deal with Chuck and Nancy. Thank you very much, Nancy. Chuck, appreciate it very much. (laughs) I love when he calls him that. I know. I know. It's so funny. But um, we're seeing McConnell sort of being pushed away. And I think that this election of Roy Moore last night over Luther Strange was a reflection of Trump's populist wave that he's created that he, you know, is unable to control. Well, it's really interesting you said that because uh, Senator John Kennedy yesterday, he is he was going to vote yes. He's kind of this folksy. Has, he's great for quotes. So we were all <laughs> talking to him yesterday, and he was really frustrated about what had happened and frustrated about the whole process. But he was also very candid in saying, I went on TV and I defended this. I didn't even know it was in the bill. But, right. you know, I'm kind of a party line guy, and I was going to vote for this. We can't do this on tax reform. Someone said, is this a reflection of Mitch McConnell? And he mm-hmm. said... It's not Mitch McConnell's fault. It's the fault of everybody around here runs around like free-range chickens, Mm. which is a classic Kennedy quote. But what he's saying is that, you know, every senator is an island and they all had their own ideas. And I think he was kind of saying we all need to get together on this. He also said Mitch 
wasn't that involved in this, it kind of got away from him. Right. Which is true in some sense. Graham Cassidy a few weeks ago was nothing. And right. then they went and they made the rounds and they talked and talked and talked and did all this work with Trump kind of behind McConnell. And then he only got involved when it seemed like there was a chance it could pass. Right. But by then, at least according to Kennedy, it was kind of the ball was already going down the hill and McConnell was not holding it. Right. So two questions. Why do you think they are doing this without McConnell? Why do you think they're sort of pushing him out of the way? Is that a larger trend that we can expect for the GOP moving forward? And was there a chance that this was ever going to pass? Like, realistically, do you were th- was there a moment when you were like, oh, this could actually pass? The first, I don't think it was an intentional push away from McConnell. At least Cassidy and Graham are kind of, they're aligned with McConnell. I think there is definitely some resentment that he couldn't get it together the first time. So there could have been like, we've got this on our own. I think that Graham very much feels like he can speak, you know, be a public face of this. He is close friends with McCain. I think maybe he was like, well, I'm going to take this on kind of lobbying for this bill. I'm well-liked in the caucus. And then I don't think they were trying to sideline McConnell. That doesn't mean the White House wasn't or anything like that. But I'm not quite sure if that's so much an example of sort of where he stands or just that things started moving very quickly and McConnell just wasn't in the lead. Right. And the resentment you mentioned, perhaps from the first go-around, which now they're sort of like, we've got this on our own. We don't need McConnell. And clearly... They, they didn't, didn't have, have it. it. Right. Um, there were a few moments when I thought this could pass. When you looked at the bill, it had a lot of the same issues as the first kind of go around. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not totally sure. You know, it was always kind of like, well, Collins will be a no. Murkowski's likely to be a no. She sort of got out of that. She never had to say a no or a yes. Right, right. Um, there were questions about people like Rob Portman and Capito who had been very vocal on the other bills and just weren't this time right. around. They wanted money for opioids, which this bill did not do. Opioid addiction, not right. for opioids. But um, this bill did not do that. But it was interesting. They were quiet. And then the Graham-McCain friendship, I think, really did have leave a lot of people questioning if Graham had enough influence to influence McCain. Um, But the minute Rand Paul popped up, he was not a no on the last go around. So when he was a no, it was already this new strike against. But there were definitely moments and they were really bullish on it. So I think just hearing them say, we're at 49 votes. You're like, well, they could probably convince one more. Right. And then they couldn't. Exactly. Uh, Who do you think this is the biggest loss for? Trump, McConnell, the GOP? Democrats? Trump's being no Democrats. <laughs> Democrats won on this. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. they feel pretty confident. Um, I think that this the biggest loss is I think Trump's base is not gonna blame Trump. They'll blame McConnell. They'll yeah. blame the establishment. Um I think it is a loss for Trump. I think kind of this was his promise, but to to know how much it'll hurt him in the polls or something like that, we're just not sure. I think right. it's for the establishment for McConnell, which is ironic because it was not McConnell. McConnell's going to vote for it. It right. was it was Rand Paul who was too conservative for this bill. Yeah. And he called it Obamacare light. Right. right. And he's like a Tea Party type guy. And those are the people that are really mad. Right. But he was against the bill. Ted Cruz raised a bunch of concerns and said he wasn't for the current version. Mike Lee, same thing. So it's interesting that conservatives are blaming the moderates and the establishment when the bill went down just as much because of conservatives. Right, right. And so Chuck Schumer, I think we have a clip, mentioned not 
who uh, was among the losers for this, but who he considers the winners of this situation. Americans breathe a sigh of relief because the health care of millions has been protected and preserved. A sigh of relief among Americans. Do you agree with that? I'd love to talk more about, like, what does this mean moving forward? Like, if you are someone who is under the Affordable Care Act, like, what does this mean now? Are you having a sigh of relief? I think in the media, at least the grassroots that really did mobilize for this, you could argue that this was very successful for the grassroots. I was at the hearing and there were hundreds of people, like probably a hundred of them in wheelchairs or at least dozens standing outside, sitting, standing outside since 5 a.m. Wow. So they showed up. They went to the offices. They called. I mean, you can definitely argue that for the grassroots, they do feel a sense of um, power and relief. The kind of average person who is on the ACIA but has seen their premiums go up is maybe momentarily relieved that they still have health insurance. But now I think you're going to see a demand for it to go down and a demand for Democrats who are saying, we'll go back to the table and we don't like everything about the Affordable Care Act. Now I think they're in the hot seat in will they really negotiate and what are they willing to give on their signature law? Because it's easy to say we'll negotiate, but Republicans will quickly point out that they're Democrats until now have not been able to negotiate too much. So So do you think Republicans are going to negotiate with Democrats then at the next go around, which will be in 2018, presumably? I think that they're thinking next reconciliation, which already makes it party line because you're using a system that you can do it party line. Right. Um, I think you'll see negotiations on help. And if they're able to stabilize the market, then there might be sort of a bigger sense of trust mm-hmm. and maybe more negotiations. There's There was all these kind of groups. There's a group of former governors who tend to be a little bit more moderate in both parties that have been having dinners. and um, right. So you might see those pop up, but I don't know if a whole overhaul, as long as Republicans still want to repeal, Democrats right. are not going to get on board. We're going to get to reconciliation in one second. If you're just tuning in, I'm Alexi McCammon, deputy news editor at Axios, filling in for Bill Press. I'm joined by Eliza Collins, who's a congressional reporter for USA Today. We're talking about health care. You just mentioned whether or not Republicans would actually be willing to negotiate with Democrats. Reconciliation is so fascinating to me because I think a lot of people don't actually understand it. Like, it is confusing. Yeah, it's really confusing. Um, Jamie, can we play the clip about McConnell talking about tax reform? Where we go from here is uh, tax reform. Short, short <laughs> message, but clear message, right? They're like, health care is dead. We're moving on to tax reform, which is their next chance for a legislative win before 2018. But I bring this up with reconciliation because now there are talks and we've reported at Axios that there are various Republicans who are interested in sort of handling health care and tax reform in the same budget under reconciliation with the same budget resolutions. Is this possible? What does this mean? And also... The way that we're told they're hoping to do it is along party lines through reconciliation for both tax reform and health care, which means they only need Republicans to vote. They don't need Democrats votes. So I think that that is it is possible to get it all on that same package. Um, I don't think that will happen. Yeah. And the reason I don't think that will happen is yesterday I was actually at a it's called Conversations with Conservatives. It's basically a press conference with the Freedom Caucus, which is the far right in the House. The House was able to pass an Obamacare repeal. It was tough. They went back and forth, back and forth. They did kind of squeak one out. Um, Someone asked that 
to Chairman Mark Meadows. And he basically said, I'd be happy to have it on the same thing, but I do want them on parallel tracks because the Senate, House loves to blame the Senate, <laughs> which in this case, they are kind of right to do the Senate, right. put it, pull it off. The Senate can't deal with health care, and I don't want health care to take tax reform down. And that was definitely the message yesterday on the Senate side after they walked out of the lunch where they decided they wouldn't vote was tax reform is its own thing. We need a win here, we being the Republicans. And so the re- health care, they've tried multiple times. They haven't been able to do it. Right. I think that they're all aware that putting health care on tax reform might sink it. And they're hoping to get a few Democrats on tax reform, which might is potentially possible. Right, definitely. Um, especially some of those we call them red state Dems. But right. the they won from states Trump won by double digits. I mean, Joe Manchin, Trump won by 42 points. Right. Height camp, North Dakota. Yeah, I think it was in the 30s. Right. And they've gone out with Trump. So mm-hmm. I think the minute you put repeal in there, you lose the Democrats. So I think there is, while there is a sense that it's possible and you might hear calls for that from the far right, the average Republican acknowledges that they couldn't do health care the other Two times, you could argue more, um, right. because they had multiple votes. Why? Why now? Why on tax reform where they actually could pass something? Right. And so, if this goes through, right? If Trump is rolling out tax reform tonight, which I think is interesting, because as I was mentioning, to Jamie earlier, today was supposed to be a day where they were voting on Graham Cassidy and rolling out tax reform, which was like sort of their way of handling both of these major policy issues at one time. Right. And now that healthcare is dead, they are again talking about how to deal with it at the same time. And you think it would be unwise. And I've heard from, or you suggest that it might make it harder to get Democrats on board if there's repeal attached to it. And that sentiment is expressed among conservative groups as well. I was at an event yesterday with Americans for Prosperity, which is a conservative group that initially was, you know, championing for healthcare reform and now since August has switched to tax reform. And they basically said, the president of the organization said it was a sobering failure for uh, Republicans when healthcare failed the first time and this time it is an epic failure. And right. they think that they should just focus on tax reform. Um do you what are your predictions for tax reform if Republicans are only focusing on one issue at one time? Do you think it has a better chance of passing than health care did? I think it depends how they go through the process. We saw yesterday John McCain, I think Bloomberg had this, um, coming out right out the gate and saying, I will have the same problems. I will oppose a bill if it is party line. Like We have right. to have hearings. We have to go through the same process. John Kennedy, again, the Mr. Quotes, but he, you know, he said, quit screwing around. We need to, he said, we need to work from 6 to 8 p.m. every night, all 52 Republicans. So he's okay with it being party line, but all 52 Republicans, 6 to 8. And then he corrected himself and said 6 to 730 in case people want to watch Wheel of Fortune. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Great show. (laughs) But he said, we need to sit down, everybody at the table, this being crafted by a couple of people you know, finding out moments before you're supposed to vote or in this case, a couple of days, it's not going to work. It will run into the same failure. So I think there is definitely a sentiment that it has to be done differently. And I think you are already seeing that. I mean, the House is going to go on their tax retreat today. Right. Which is like hours long where they'll be presented the tax plan. It was still written with a small group behind closed doors, but they're sort of unveiling it to everybody and giving a runway for negotiations and things like that, 
We'll see what happens in the Senate. I, we right. just have to see. But I think there's definitely sentiment among Republicans that, A, they have to do this. They made all of these promises. They have the House, the Senate, the White House. They haven't been able to get anything done. Right. And, B, they have to do it differently because they're going to run into the same pushback. Right. And doing it differently is a big thing that they will have to focus on. But when you're on the Hill and you're talking to lawmakers, what is the sentiment you're getting from folks about the details that we have thus far about the administration's tax plan? I know that a lot of people still want more details, right? We have this broad idea that it is cutting taxes for the wealthiest Americans from 39.6% to 35%. It's cutting corporate rates uh, and small business rates. It is reducing the number of brackets from seven to three. But there's a lot that people don't know about. uh, And there's a lot that I think people are concerned about. Do you, have you heard that Republicans or conservative lawmakers are on board with the details that we have so far? Like, how are they receiving what we know? There is a sense of frustration that they have not been given details. Yeah. There is that same feeling I was just talking about on healthcare, kind of like, you're expecting us to vote on this, where we have to know what's in it. That being said, Mark Meadows yesterday said, my red line, and he named a bunch of uh, different kind of numbers, you know, down mm-hmm. to corporate rate down to 20, things like that, which happen to be what we're hearing the numbers will be from the White House. Meadows is very close to Trump. So I think you will probably see a overall support of what those numbers are. But there is a real sense of frustration, too. They want details and they're not there. I mean, we'll see what happens after this retreat today. Right. And the interesting thing I've been following is, I mean, obviously, we're both journalists uh, obsessed with words and semantics. And I love seeing the shift of Trump calling it tax reform to now just tax cuts. Uh, We're even hearing tax relief from some folks. But I was told that at this conservative dinner, he basically said, like, you all are referring to it as reform and that's fine. But I'm not going to refer to it as reform anymore because people don't know what reform means. Like if you're just like you know, an average American, you hear tax reform, like, does that mean you're paying more? Are you paying less? What does right. that look like? What does that mean for your tax income every year? And so now he's saying, I'm only going to refer to it as tax cuts. And I'm so curious to see tonight at this rally in Indiana how he packages how he it. Um, do you think that Republicans, based on conversations you're having, Republican lawmakers will be happy with tax reform, quote, if it's just cuts? There was de- they definitely wanted tax reform, right? Like I complete think, reform, yes. They a la to Reagan, overhaul the whole system, right? Um, the less likely that is, I think, the more likely you'll suddenly see them being like, "Tax cuts are okay." <laughs> they there's a sense that they really, really need a legislative victory, and if right. they can have something that Trump signs that they said that involves taxes, I think that they might kind of begrudgingly be like, we did it because they have to have something and there isn't much. I do think that this is something that Trump has done very successfully is speak to the average man or woman. Right. And I think he's right in that tax reform is a little bit more confusing than tax cuts. Exactly. Everyone can say, I'd like to pay less on my taxes. Right. That being said, there is concern from lawmakers that when Trump says things like that, he's either going to undermine what's actually happening or he's going he doesn't understand the full details. I I was reading, I think, in Playbook today, or it might have been your guys' newsletter that one of the Hopefully two. Axios. Um that <laughs> Trump 
is wants 15% for corporations, which right. is not the actual number. Right, it's 20%. It's 20. Right now. And so there's real concern that he's going to go out to the rally and suddenly say 15. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of how people are dealing with Trump while they're happy that this is business and he understands this and is more excited about this than healthcare, you could argue. And they're fine with him saying tax cuts if that gets people more excited. Right. They need him to understand what they're actually trying to push for. Right. That's a really good point because we saw how Trump sort of fumbled on healthcare messaging and selling that. And I've heard from people who say we need Trump to be on the front line selling tax reform, tax cuts. And, you know, he's a businessman in his previous life, so he understands what right. the importance of tax cuts looks like for people and businesses and Americans at large. Um, so it'll be really curious to see whether or not he goes out and just starts throwing out these numbers or whether he can effectively sell it, as you've said. Uh, Eliza, you... I want to talk about Bob Corker. Yes. Not uh, seeking re-election. What does that mean for Republicans in the Senate? That's a really big deal. Yeah. Um, first of all, it's the first Republican senator to say he's not going to do it. We've seen some House members in right. moderate districts say, I'm out. But Senate, you have a lot more power. The majority is a lot closer. It's 52 Republicans, 48 Democrats. Of course, Tennessee is a red state. Right. But Democrats are seeing this as a potential pickup. And Corker is, he's known as a deal maker. He's very respected in both sides. I mean, the minute he announced, I, my inbox was flooded with Democrats and Republicans saying this is a loss for the Senate. Interesting. Um, there was definitely, he's really well liked and he is a very strong voice on foreign policy and having losing him is a big deal for kind of the senate he's also an ally of mitch mcconnell and again mitch's bad day yesterday (laughs) just top it off but (laughs) he is close to him he's a reliable republican vote he will work with leadership he champions a lot of their ideas right and we saw last night that there will for sure be a kind of brutal primary with, I'm sure, people from the far right, people who do not like McConnell getting in there. And so it's a potential either for someone like Roy Moore, who is very critical of McConnell, not a reliable vote for him, or potentially a Democrat taking over in Tennessee. So so I think that there's real concern for who takes over, but then also just an overall sense of loss because he is a negotiator and a friend and a voice right. on foreign policy on both sides of the aisle. Briefly, can you summarize the reasons why Corker is not seeking re-election? He's saying, for folks listening. He, he's saying, you know, I've, I've done two terms. It's right. time for me to step out. I mean, he's being kind of broad. Right. There were stories over the summer that sort of the Bannon aligned that far right. We keep talking about talking about primarying him. Um, I think he saw how these polls were going in Alabama with the Luther Strange. Granted, Corker is more of a – he's been around for a lot longer. Luther Strange has been around since right. Jeff Sessions left. Right. But I think he saw that it they're not winning. They're not getting legislative victories. Um, there's a lot of up, kind of uproar at the establishment, which Bob Corker is certainly part of. Right. And he had vowed that he wasn't going to be in this forever. He was not going to – I think – I don't know if he had a two-term limit, but he definitely has said that that is something, you know, he was not a guarantee for him. He was going to get in, serve, and get out. And so it's sort of in line with that. Right. But there's just a lot of resentment at the establishment. It was going to be a tough race, at least a tough primary for him. And I think he kind of said, 
I'm out. It's, right. it's not worth it. Right. Well, between that and Roy Moore's victory last night, the winds are certainly shifting for Republicans. So we'll see right. what happens. It's definitely setting up to be sort of this this war within the GOP, and it already has been. Right. Um, we're seeing that in the House with the Freedom Caucus being able to stop a lot of things. And I think now, before it was just kind of Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, Mike Lee on occasion. Um, but they're adding another voice in there if Roy Moore gets in. Interesting times. Eliza Collins from USA Today, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. We will be with Tyler Tynes from SB Nation up next, talking all about NFL protests and much more. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. President Trump. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, everyone. I'm Alexi McCammon, deputy news editor from Axios, filling in for Bill Press today. I am joined by Tyler Tynes of yeah. SB Nation. Tyler, what up? Yeah. How yeah. are you? Oh, you know, I'm blessed. Thank you for joining me. Hey, you got a microphone to use. Use that microphone. Hey, man, let me. Wow. (laughs) See, that's why you can't bring these Jamie Bensons around. Nothing is acceptable. You can't can't bring them around. Before we start, though, shout out out to my guy, Peter Ogburn. Yes. Hope he's making a good recovery. I heard he's going to be back soon, you know, a.k.a. Young Fire Truck himself, a.k.a. Tats of My Arms, a.k.a. Only Alabama I know, not named Roy Moore, a.k.a. <laughs> oh, you know what I'm Shout out to him, man. We Peter miss Ogburn. you. Peter Ogburn. We you know, do. I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. we have not given a Peter Ogburn update on the show in one. a while. And some people have been asking me. I've even gotten emails. What up, Pete? Uh, Peter Ogburn is uh, slated to return next week. That's yeah. all I will say. So Amazing. Uh, make sure you, you tune in uh, next week. It's going to be a, a big week uh, if, in fact... Barring any complications, Peter Ogburn returns to that chair right over there. We're going to eat some cheesesteaks. It's going to be lit. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited to have him back. He emailed me yesterday, and it made me a little nervous. He's like, do you have any last-minute questions or concerns? I'm like, no, should I? No, Where are you? Should, yeah. <laughs> so it was very nice of him. But, Tyler, I'm so happy to have you here. You happy. That's good. Not happy. <laughs> Someone's happy. happy. Jamie's not happy, so I have to be happy. Jamie what are you talking about? I'm happy. I'm never happy when you see me. So no, never. Never. Uh, Tyler. NFL. What about it? I don't know anything about sports, <laughs> and since Friday, I have been forced to learn so much about you sports. You DC political journalist, y'all gotta y'all gotta look outside the lens. You know what I mean? No, I'm from Chicago. Shout I just out. moved here a few months ago. So you, I'm so you not should know about DC bad insider. football. That's good. No, yeah. Oh, oh, the yeah. Bears are bad football. You yeah. know, I will agree with that. I, I I'm going to the Michigan Michigan State game next weekend. Why are you doing all this bad football? What, what are you doing? Is that bad? This is all bad football. Well, I've heard it's good, so we'll see. But I'm uh, lying to you. I mean. Yeah. Anyway, I've had to learn so much about sports lately. Not really, just about the protests. So let's talk about that. I'd love to start off with Sarah Sanders, uh, the woman at the podium who loves saying things that make no sense. And sometimes you leave the press briefings and you feel like you know less than when you started. So let's hear what she had to say about Trump's comments on NFL protests. I think that it's always appropriate for the president of the United States to defend our flag, to defend the national anthem, and to defend the men and women who fought and died to defend it. So she's saying it is always acceptable for the president to refer to African-American athletes as sons of bitches, which is what he did. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is like the false conflation that we're doing for the White House, right? So it's her job to double down on what the president's saying. You know, it would be something, you know, extremely different if Sarah Sanders jumped up here and was like, you know, Donald Trump's a liar, right? Like, like that would be really lit, though. So her job actually, you know, being the press secretary is to double down on the bad and racist rhetoric that Donald Trump is positing to the rest of America, this uplifting of white supremacy and, you know, using it as a platform to embolden his base, right? right. But to think that... Black men, both in the NBA and the NFL, who are kneeling for racial justice and, and, and the ending of a police state that is America, I, I, you know, to have a false conflation to, you know, to bring that with the flag is, is ludicrous, right? I think the one thing we saw from Jerry Jones, even though this was like a very dope PR spin from like a Texas billionaire who's still friends with Trump, is to show that even without the anthem... People still booed people doing this gesture. Why? Because this gesture is linked to blackness. This gesture is linked to, you know, the othering of the American state. It's linked to everything that's not conservative or right leaning or the stormfront commenteers. Right. So we are seeing more and more as we progress through this movement that this has nothing to do with the anthem. This has nothing to do with the flag. This has nothing to do with like this faux Americanist that we've been talking about. But it's exactly what black players and fans and protesters and boycotters have been saying for literal months. Right. This is about a police state. This is about white supremacy. This is about racial and systemic injustice. Right. So I'm so glad you brought this up because I think it gets lost or it's easy for folks to trail off or get lost in these conversations when it's like Trump is saying it's not about race, right? My boss at Axios, Mike Allen, wrote in his newsletter the other Shout day, out. like, if, you ha- or if you're at a point where you have to say it's not about race, it is not good for you. Like, you who are in trouble, basically. And that's exactly what Trump is doing. But it's easy for him and folks who share his ideas to say, like, yeah, this is about people uh, being unpatriotic, right? People sort of rebuking the flag and patriotism and the American military, but they are ignoring what it's actually about. Why which are people is about... funny like that? You know, <laughs> um, it, it doesn't really matter on, on either side, right? I think we have a lot of politicos now kind of using this moment to really express what they think this is about. And then you have a lot of people who are right-leaning and are, you know, right of moderate who would say, no, this is what this is about. But it, it's been right. a very simple thing since maybe around August 2016 and even before that when WNBA players were protesting racial injustice, even before that when LeBron James was saying, I can't breathe, and even before that when Dwayne Wade was wearing a, a hoodie in honor of Trayvon Martin. This has been about black lives being killed over and over and over again by a police state, something that is uplifting white supremacy and emboldening the base that has elected Donald Trump. This right. redemptive moment in American history after what felt like a modern form of reconstruction where white people are upset. They're pushing this Caucasian ethnostate, and it's not the fact that black people have been protesting for the entire decade. It's more so the fact that they are afraid of what black people can do. They're afraid of the promise that black people, the progeny of slaves, are almost about to touch, and they feel as though they need to strike back. We've seen this all over American history when black politicos and and legislation, you know, is made for black people to actually advance for any progressivism, right? Right. White folks strike back. We've seen it over and over and over again, and right now we're in the eye of that storm. Right. So, question for you. Uh, The players who are protesting are... African-American. Donald Trump is not, right? He's Shout right. out to him. <laughs> Do you think that when talking about this issue and talking about what it is about, right? Like Donald Trump says it's not about race. It's about the flag. It's about... He's a liar. Right? We're saying it's about race, racial injustice, all these things. Yeah. Do you think that... And I'm just going to be blunt. Like, do you think that white people have a place to say what this is or isn't about? Or do you think they shouldn't even be... I think there's one. 
Do you want to guess? I mean, Jamie, if you if you if you got it, it's not mean. me. Uh, <laughs> I know, it's like uh. it's Greg Popovich from the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, I mean, it's not though, right? So like that's kind of where this gets a little bit more complicated because right. a lot of folks who are either moderates or a little left leaning in this sense, or or in, in at least in the argument. They adore people like Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich because it's like, oh, my God, there are white people talking about things that white people should inherently understand. But we don't because we're white people. And to white people, if you can have other white people tell you what it means to be white, you feel better about yourself. But that actually defeats the whole purpose of the argument. I don't care what Greg Popovich says. I don't care what Steve Kerr says. I need you to listen to the people that are actually affected by the issue. Right. Right. Like, I need you to listen to Steph Curry. I need you to listen to LeBron James, even though their messaging can be a little conflicted at times. I need you to listen to the people that are actually being affected, not the people that it makes you feel good because you can hear it from them. Right. Non-consciously. So I I need less of Greg Popovich and more of Steph Curry. I need less of Steve Curry and more of LeBron James. And they've been taking, you know, this route to do that. But. If I could, like, not hear from any white people about this issue of racial justice that they don't actually experience, I'm fine with that. You know, I'm, I'm real cool off that. You I know? stand corrected. I don't need it. I stand corrected. You make an excellent <laughs> point there. You're right. We should not be looking to folks who are not personally affected by this to be the leading thought, progressive, whatever people out right. there trying to explain what's really going on. And it's not the fault of Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr who are doing this because they feel as though they're speaking truth to power. And right. that's great. And we do need white people to do this. And we do need white people in positions of power to use their platforms to also push a message of racial justice. That's great. If they're However, listening. If they're listening. Right. However, they cannot be the centerpiece of this. And when you have right. Greg Popovich who gave comments at Media Day the other day and was trying to make an argument that you cannot be born into whiteness and whiteness is not real as if he's been reading Ta-Nehisi Coates' bibliography too much for the last few days. <laughs> That's where it gets problematic, right? Because right. you've been looked at as this person who's going to speak very frequently on white issues as a white person to give it back to other white people. But your messaging can't be flawed right? because you're you're the white savior in this moment, right? You can't be the flawed messenger off this. So right. I need less of them and I need more of all the other black people who are actually going through this. Right. Uh Potentially controversial question, but this will make for a good thing. Shout out to you. Could you make the argument that this is about patriotism? I mean, a white people it is, right? Like, <laughs> if we keep talking about the flag and the anthem, I mean, I've never heard it. My anthem's March Madness. But if we, if we keep talking about these types of things, like, of course, to them and, and to other conservative bases, like, this is 100% about patriotism. If right. you're black, if you're brown, if you're of, the, of oppressed groups, if you're not, you know— White men in this country, uh, you know, this is jingoistic, right? This is xenophobic in a way. This is thinking that these black people aren't actually American because they're not monolithic. These black men who we assume are just basically indentured servants or slaves of the field who really don't make the money you think they do and don't play as long as you think they do, you think they should only do one thing. Right. And to well-meaning white folks, we posit it as a stick to sports era and almost as if it's over because Trump has now positioned himself to think that, oh, my God, more and more black athletes are talking about this. There was never a stick to sports era. There was never a moment in history where black folks were not seen as monolithic or animalistic or othered. There was this moment where we thought that if we put them on the field for our own entertainment, they'd be a little bit safer than we thought they were from the beginning of time. Right. And that's a lie. Right. All of this is a lie, right? Like right. The, the, the realness of this situation is the fact that these black boys, these black women in jerseys and helmets on courts and fields, they care as much about their blackness 24-7 as you think they don't. Right, right. They care. They have feelings. They're people. Right. I know often we forget that black folks are people, but they are people. <laughs> and professional athletes, apparently. Shout right? out to them. Right. Um, I was reading yesterday in the New York Times 
they had this article about the um, the sort of resolutions for all of these police-involved shootings against unarmed black men since 2014 and, like, what happened, right? Who was convicted? Who wasn't? What were the settlements? Mm-hmm. What wasn't? Uh, and there was a line in there from a professor at Bowling Green State University who used to be a former police officer who now tracks police crime. And he said, most police shootings are found to be legally justified. And, like... We see that yeah. in the way that officers are not convicted, not charged, right? Get in or out of these settlements. Yeah. And I thought that was just a really harrowing line for people to consider and pause on, right? Most police shootings are found to be legally justified. And that sort of speaks to how this all started, right? You mentioned LeBron. You mentioned Kaepernick. Like, all these people who are speaking out after these things are happening, after police officers are shooting and killing unarmed black men and nothing happens, right? Because it is legally justified. That's what all this sort of comes down to, right? Like, let's talk about how this all started. I mean, it's, it's the same point <laughs> that folks have been making since the decade started and in public and, you know, with the 24-hour news cycle, we see more and more and more black bodies on, the, on, on, on you know, on television, on CNN, on MSNBC, on all of these different networks. And right. It becomes like you get desensitized almost like being black in America. Already you become desensitized to a lot of the societal ills that are attacking your body because you are a political statement just by waking up. But at the same time, it's like I'm real tired of seeing black men and women, Charlena Lyle, Shavon Martin and others on my television screen. And these white men sitting in court with no repercussions, these white women killing our boys and girls with no repercussions and I don't think that it's enough just to be outraged that this is a thing that is happening. I think it is enough to be outraged to know that this is never going to end. Right. That th- th- this is a disease of America. Like this, this, this is not going over. This started in slave patrols in 1619. Right. It's 2017, and we probably have another few hundred years to go before we start actually caring and convicting these people that are killing our black people. Right. This ain't over. I know. And it's not over because Donald Trump said a few words. The, the, the fallacy in all of this, the biggest lie in all of this, is people thinking, similar to when Obama got elected, that we could be post-racial. That because 200 black boys got on their knees and said, enough is enough, that by next week something is going to change. By next week, legislation is going to be overturned. By next week, places like Vidor, Texas won't exist. And that is a lie. Right. America will be America next week and next year and so on and so forth until white people actually decide to fix the ills of America that starts with racism because they started it. And the irony of it is they can fix it. But I mean, complacency is real dope out here in these streets. So mm. uh, you bring up a great point about Trump uh, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But if you're just tuning in, I'm Alexi McCammon from Axios filling in for Bill Press. I'm with Tyler Tynes from <laughs> SB Nation. You can follow him on Twitter at Tyler Ricky Tynes. Thank you for being here. Send I have bottles. really good news. Yeah. We, you are doing, apparently, to our chat room, youtube.com backslash the Bill Press Show, exactly what we need white people to feel. You are making them uncomfortable. Good, bruh. I mean, <laughs> this ain't about, you know, kittens and sunshines. Right. It ain't never been for us. Right. Um, so Trump has proven with so many things, but especially with his views on NFL protests, that he harbors these really sort of antiquated views that are reflective of his age right he's 71 72 and we see that in the way that he's like this is not about race right doesn't acknowledge that i also was thinking this morning as i was preparing for this like did we all forget that he just met with tim scott and i mean clearly nothing i mean came i mean, I mean we of the black delegation would like to rescind our trade for tim scott <laughs> i mean 
I don't I don't know if anyone sent a memo out to the rest of us to see if if we wanted to send Tim Scott to be the bearer of bad news about race. But I mean, if if we can try again, that right. that'd be great. Right. Scott, but just based on the sock game alone, his sock game sucks. Oh, I haven't seen his socks, but like I believe you. I mean, in any case, like however you feel Tim. about Tim, right? He is a an African American man who is a Republican senator who had who is the only one. Only African-American man we know of to have a one-on-one sit-down with Trump to talk about race, right? At least they're having that conversation. I mean, the Congressional but Black Caucus went and talked to Trump about multiple racial tried issues. Tried to, right? And he is just, he's clearly not listening, right? Which is my point. Is like, he's not listening, which we Though they know maybe is so are important. not also the people who had sent, but it's fine. <laughs> uh, he's not listening. He has these sort of antiquated generational views about race. But especially, which I think is important to note, about concussions and the prevalence of concussions in football now right he made some comments i don't think we have the clip jamie which is fine but um he made some comments like that was downplaying how severe of an issue this is can you talk to me a little bit about cte and studies about this and lawmakers who are working actively to help players who suffer from cte I mean, it's it's the same thing. It's the same spin Trump is doing when it comes to protests, right? He goes to Alabama to stump for Luther Strange. Shout out to that L, by the way, my guy. Um, <laughs> you know, he goes to Alabama to 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 stump for Luther Strange, and in it, he does a very similar thing that he did in Reno, Nevada, before he became president. He talks about little dings on the head. He talks about America being soft, like the NFL is being soft. He talks about right. how CTE is not a real thing. And I would push back a lot on thinking these are antiquated feelings because even on race and on head injuries, these aren't antiquated feelings. Like these are feelings that are passed down. These are feelings that are conscious in, in younger white teens. These are feelings that are America's feelings because if they weren't, America wouldn't overwhelmingly have voted in someone as idiotic and someone who lies consistently as the president of the United States that we have right now. But uh, the feelings about CTE that he has that lawmakers are pushing for, it's the reality of the situation. We still cannot detect CTE in a living person, even though there is a protein right now, extremely experimental by Dr. Ann McKee, who's talked about it, that could be out there, you know. We have to wait till people die to see what's wrong with CTE. And even when we when they do die, like Aaron Hernandez, we still cannot right. link these moments together to think that there are issues in a person's brain, like the dementia, the fits of rage, everything. Um, right. So what Trump is saying isn't outdated in any way. What Trump is saying is very common to people who think that black athletes should just be black athletes and not really be people outside of that helmet. So right. this is I think the bigger problem to me, though, is the folks who don't make it to make money. The folks who yeah. don't make it to the NFL and the NBA and professional soccer and other and sports that, you from. know, that suffer from this. And a lot of folks who are stuck in the cycle of poverty, these black folks and boys that are in, and girls that are stuck in the cycle of poverty, they say, oh, maybe if I go play football, my family can get some money. It, it sucks that black folks have to make dangerous choices to make their lives less dangerous in America. But that's the reality of the situation. They go to the NFL and they say, I don't care as much about ba- bashing my brain as I do about getting this money. My family right. needs this money. I need this money. I've never had this much money in my life. I don't care if this is for two or three years on average. I need this money. Though it's usually, the onus is usually never on them to take care of them after it's all over. So what Trump is saying is just, it's linked in with his comments on protest. He doesn't think these people that are, you know, doing violent things on the field should have any repercussion, you know? Right. And so, okay, so you argue that it's not an antiquated view, and I think that's fair, right? I think it's fair that he is saying these things because it's what he thinks currently, and it's what uh, some of his supporters think currently. Where do you think these views on, like, concussions and CTE is coming from? Do you think it is coming from this idea of, like, 
us versus them, right? Like it's very easy to categorize these players as them or as the other because they don't look like you. They're there for your entertainment, as you've said. They don't need to deal with the repercussions. Or do you think it is because of the research and the proteins that you mentioned that are still being developed and coming out and we're all still sort of learning? I think it's this combination this. of things, right? It's this lack of, <clears throat> I can't say it's this lack of information, but it's the skepticism of the information. Uh, yeah. A lot from middle America and the South and places that aren't really like metropolitan America in some way, right? right? Like outside of certain cities, a lot of people, and even in those cities, a lot of people still think that this research isn't 100% based in fact, that it's extremely biased, right? The other side of that is a level of jealousy. White folks hate it when black folks get on. You know what I'm saying? Like, they hate it. Like, I can't have $20 if you don't have $20. Like, all right, fine, cool, that's lit. But, you know, if these black millionaires are making the conscious decision to then go on the field and then bash their brains in, even though America has settled into a blood pack to care about this thing and it's become really America's pastime, not baseball, shout out baseball, you know, the white folks who are the major bulk of the consumers and who the NFL is pitching to when doing these games, they don't care that this is happening to people that don't look like them. They don't think Tom Brady's ever had a concussion. Right. So they think the onus is on these these mostly black men to figure it out. You know, they think they should have better health care. They think that they should use the millions of dollars they don't really have right. to afford the years and decades of medical care that should come after that. And nobody can afford that. So... I think in one way it's people, white folks who are mostly jealous that these people, you know, have the money and shouldn't be able to fix themselves. These gladiators can't go back to war. Right. In another way, it's like, I mean, why should I care? It's another football player coming through that door. Mm. Speaking of uh, white folks potentially being out of touch, let's play this clip from Aaron Rodgers, who has a what he thinks a helpful suggestion for Shout protests. out my guy, A-Rock. We're going to continue to show love and unity, and this week we're going to ask the fans to join in as well and come together and, and show people that we can be connected and we can grow together. All right, let's... Uh, Shout out to these lies. Right, so let's talk about... I saw this poll that says 57% of people don't think NFL players should be fired for kneeling. But here we are, Aaron Rodgers, <laughs> suggesting an alternative to kneeling. I mean... The word unity is like this co-opted thing that the NFL has used over the last weekend to like protect the shield. They put out an ad. I was going to say they're bringing back that Super Bowl ad, right? They brought they were bringing back the Super Bowl ad, uh, which was corny to begin with. But <laughs> I mean, shout out to this unity. Uh, unity is the word that we're using to not talk about Colin Kaepernick. Mm. It's the word we're using to not talk about Michael Bennett. It's the words we're using to not talk about all the black bodies slain in America. You know. The folks who are actually giving up game checks to care full time about black lives, those are the folks who we should be unified with. That's the messaging we should be unified with. No one gives a damn about this brotherhood, this fake brotherhood of the NFL that only about, you know, a bunch of these players only experiencing for two or three years, right? Like, the reason these protests have reached the NFL is because Colin Kaepernick had to lose his job and become a right. martyr for the rest of the league to give a damn. And Still then they were emboldened by President Donald Trump. And then we're now at a point where folks like Aaron Rodgers, one of the greatest white savers we, we could possibly have in the NFL, thinks that this is all going to go away by locking arms. Right. That's right. so dope. I wish I could even think like that, right? Like that's that's like such a dope concept in theory to be like that out of touch with like the rest of the people in your locker room right. to really think that a guy 
we're gonna get these shoulder bumps off real quick and it's gonna be great like if you kneel though i'm gonna put my hand on your shoulder and we're gonna uh, you know we're, we're, we're gonna get it popping that's stupid right. as a patriots stupid. fan as a patriots fan for once shout I am out happy, to your guy brady i'm happy that tom brady hasn't said anything <laughs> i mean he did have he went on an interview uh, uh, on monday saying that you know the president's comments were divisive but i uh, mean what's divisive <laughs> yeah you know um, I mean? like shout 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 out to your favorite show in boston though i know he was on that i know i know you I knew no, you bumped KNC crazy. My favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quickly before we wrap up, let's talk about your Oakland Raiders piece. Why is that different? Why was that different for you? Seeing the way they protested. I don't. I don't. I don't know if it. I, I, you know, it's hard to explain, right? Like yeah. Marshall Newhouse, Donald Penn, Calicio Semele. You know, all of those guys. Like, I think. I think it's different because it touches on the old antiquation of the league and and, and the new like the newness of the league too. Black folks still don't play certain positions in the NFL. Like, if you are center down the field, if you're a quarterback, a middle linebacker, a center, you, you can't be black and play those positions, right? right? Like that. The assumption is that you're not authoritarian enough and you can't take charge enough because you're not smart enough because we don't think you're an actual person that we won't let you be a quarterback, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, the only quarterbacks we do have, the black quarterbacks that we do have right now, Deshaun Kaiser, Dak Prescott, Cam Newton, none of them are speaking about racial justice. None of them are speaking about police brutality. They're just, in a way, almost outraged the president said a thing. And, like, if we're kids on a sandbox that are five years old, like, that's cool. Like, Jimmy said a thing. I'm mad. Like, okay, what's next, though, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what's next? So the Raiders have consistently talked about racial justice in their locker room, especially on that offensive line. Marshall Newhouse I met with a few months ago in the Espionation offices in New York, and he's, I mean, look, the Raiders do what they do. Like, right. this is a long time coming. And you said their entire line is black, which is something that's often an anomaly, anomaly in the NFL. We don't do that. Uh, right, we don't do right, that. Right. Tyler Tynes, thank you so much for being here. I'm Alexi B. Cam again, filling in for Bill Press. Thank you all for joining us. This is great. We'll see what's next. Yeah, shout out. More writing, more Some. protests. We'll see you this week on Thursday. Bill's back tomorrow. Ain't nothing going to change. This is the Bill Press Show.